Welcome to the uh, PDX Media Good Old Days, Marky. Uh, <laughs> and you, you've covered uh, several arms of media, so we could ch chat about all that. Uh, let's just start with what you're doing now. Are you you're back to the Seattle area? Is that right? No, no, I live in Portland. Oh, good. Okay. We still live in Portland. And when there's not a quarantine, what I have been doing the last few years is um, I did radio work for KPAM for about three years, two and a uh -huh. half years, and a lot of theater, which I always wanted to do more of. But, you know, I had full-time jobs and my full-time jobs, as you know, in media usually mean much more than full-time. No kidding. Yeah. Uh, I, I love your theater background because it's been going on for so long. I saw you at Guys and Dolls probably in the early 80s. Yeah, I think that was around 83, but yeah. it goes much back much further than that. I actually did, um, I grew up in Southern California. Not true, we moved 18 times. We ended up in Southern California. And um, I did The Sound of Music with Florence Henderson when I was 16. Nice. I, I am 16 going on 17, and I was, and yeah. I got equity cards. So I've been doing this more than 50 years now. So the uh, that's the part of the the girl who wants to marry um, the. Oh, she, she's in love with Rolf, who's secretly right. a Nazi. Right, right. What uh, you didn't see the Sound of Music, that classic film. No, I, I've I've seen it many times. I just can't keep all the kids straight. <laughs> <laughs> they are, they had too many. I remember my uh, my niece uh, uh, went to Leavenworth every summer to do musical theater. And she was the understudy uh, for, um, uh, what's her name? What's the main part? Come on now. Maria. Yeah, I wanted to say uh, Julie Andrews, but no, she was the understudy for Maria. So we went up the one night that she got to perform the, Maria. And I, I remember she, she had to kiss the, uh, uh, her love interest. And the guy was like 30 years older than she was because she was just a kid. It was, made her uncle a little uncomfortable. I think that was actually realistic, Carl. Probably, I think yeah. Von Trapp, Trapp really was that much older than Maria was in the original. But you know, of course, that their great-grandchildren live in Portland and uh -huh. Saint Martini, I got to perform with them. I played Liesl at 16. I played Maria my senior year of high school. I played Maria again in Seattle. And then at Broadway Rose Theater here in Portland, um, out in Tigard, I got to play uh, the Mother Superior a few years ago, I told my husband, the only thing left for me is Captain Von Trapp. <laughs> and that's a new version of The Sound of Music. <laughs> well, you know, these days, <laughs> there's all this gender fluidity, why not? <laughs> yeah. How'd you end up in Seattle then when you uh, started, I think, at King TV, right? Yeah, I, I did want to pursue a career at first, I thought, in opera and uh, studied at the Mozarteum in Salzburg after I graduated from Whitman. But you know what? It was just too peripatetic. I decided, no, living out of a suitcase and not having a real home is not for me. And uh, I was in my early 20s. So I moved to Seattle where a lot of my college friends were and I was hired by King Broadcasting. In fact, I was hired by King Radio, King AM, Rockin' Radio 11, which boy, we could do a whole podcast <laughs> on experiences with those crazy people. They were so much fun. But that's where I got my start. Um, I, I was hired as the secretary receptionist because back then there was help wanted male, help wanted female. And uh, there, wasn't a lot, there weren't a lot of options for women, but no kidding. I was lucky because I got the secretarial post with King Radio, which was in the same building as King TV and King FM. And, um, and just 
honestly work my way up. Mm -hmm. And uh, did I started singing commercial jingles in their production office. And then I started my own commercial jingle company where I would write and arrange and record spec commercial jingles, all my voice, because I didn't want to pay anybody else for the specs and, uh, and sell some and, and then started getting some national uh, jingle commercials. And I kind of thought, well, you know, maybe I will be a singer after all. But then hard right turn, got hired for a public affairs show on King Radio, which was simulcast AM, FM, which is an interesting combination, rock and roll and classical music. It was yeah. the only show they had in common, but they had to do a public affairs show, the FCC said. So back with the, the fairness guy, doctrine. Exactly. And equal time. And we can talk about that. But the guy who hosted the show, unfortunately, got cancer. And he came to me and said, you know, I think you should try to do this job. And I said, no, no, no. Because the belief then was no one wants to hear a woman's voice on the radio. Right. Do you remember hearing that ever? Because I certainly heard it a lot. Yeah, I, I, I know that I know that it happened. But I, I went in. So I went into the boss and I <laughs> I presented a 63 page proposal that I host this little four hour public affairs show that aired on Sunday mornings from six to 10 a.m. <laughs> well, you were thorough. Let me tell you, I, I was ready. And he, I mean, what could he do? He gave it to me. So that's how I got my start. And then yeah. later I worked into uh, TV producing, writing scripts and, um, and filling in for the, the host of Seattle Today, which was their morning talk show. And that there was your link to uh, Ann Northwest at K2, right? That's right. Unfortunately, I uh, decided to leave King because um, I was having sexual harassment problems. My I had a new boss who came to my apartment at midnight and said that um, if I wouldn't, uh, how shall I say this, be his girlfriend, that he would take me off the air. And at this point I was doing reporting on the weekends. I was produ associate producing an evening talk show. I was filling in for um, the woman host of Seattle Today. I was doing documentaries and appearing on camera. And, and I said, no, and he took me off all of them. And so uh, I had a friend at Como TV in Seattle, which was owned by Fisher, which also owned at that time Channel 2 down here. And she and her husband, Ken, who was working at King, uh, highly recommended me for this spot on AM Northwest. And I came down and talked to the wonderful Chuck Ingold, who was program director at Channel 2 back then. And uh, he hired me. So that was, that was a really fortunate thing for me. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it turned out great for you and us and your career in Portland, uh, but the process by which you had to go through that kind of sucked. It really did because, you know, after I, I didn't make a big deal of it, I told very few people, but after I had resigned and said I'm leaving for K2 in Portland, um, I decided, you know, I need to tell King about this guy because he could cause him a lot of trouble. So I went into the personnel woman, that's what they called it then, not human resources. And I said, you know, you need to know this is why I'm leaving and this guy could cause you a lot of problems. And this woman said, well, right now we're being sued by another woman because of his behavior. And if you testify against him, you will never work in TV again. So, mm. you know, I thought, well, I'm leaving at the right time and I hope for the right place. Okay, so uh, I'm gonna take this time to apologize to you on behalf of my gender. Uh, 
no, 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 no. no. You know why you don't need to do that? Because so many more men have been supportive and have been mentors and have been um, just terrific people, lifelong friends. I still communicate with Chuck Gingold. He went on to WABC as program director in New York City and then headed the, the Discovery Channel until mm -hmm. he retired. And he's just a wonderful man and he was so supportive. So for every bad apple, there were, you know, more good apples. You don't need to apologize. I love men. I have lots of brothers and the best, I had the best dad in the world. So no, no, no. Well, I, <laughs> I guess I, I, I would, I'd like to think that uh, what you went through and many other uh, women have done uh, paved the way for a, uh, a societal change where uh, we've, we're on the way, I guess, to remedying that or fixing it. We know that's not the case. Um, uh, you know, hopefully if that kind of thing were to happen to a young woman today, she would have avenues that were a little stronger to, uh, to fix the situation. Well, she would have those avenues. She does have those avenues because there were no laws back then no. about sexual harassment. And um, basically the way we handled it was by telling no one. You know, I'm, I, told my, I told my best friend, that's the only person I told. I didn't even tell my mother, you know. Um, I, you just you just accept it and move on. Back then, there was some kind of saying about how women have to work twice as hard to get half as much. But thank goodness that's easy to do. You know, <laughs> it was humor. It was yeah, irony, right? right? But we kind of used that mentality to to cope and say, well, I'm not going to let this stop me. I'm just going to keep going. I'm going to find a place where I can do what I want to do and what I hope I do well. Yeah, and one of the joys of talking with some people over this podcast, uh, and even people who haven't done it, but I've talked to them about things like that, is learning um, how many people have had to struggle through situations like that, uh, based on gender or race. Uh, uh, you know, I, I for much of my time, I was pretty naive to the fact that some people that I was working with were going through that and being silent because it wasn't going to help them. Uh, uh, I'm sad that uh, it, it took a while for me and for many of us to kind of, uh, you know, get on board and understand what people were going through. Well, a big part of it, as you say, is because we didn't tell you guys, you know, because we didn't want word to get back to the guy who's doing it, and then we'd lose our job. <laughs> and so um, I think, you know, if there had been some way to let the men be aware, I think they, they would have defended us along with the other women we told. But, um, you know, and it, and I, I had experiences at K2 too. And I have to tell you that even now, I made a conscious decision maybe 10 years ago to start talking about this stuff. And uh, two very interesting things happened. One is women I worked with up in Seattle and not so much in Portland, but up in Seattle chimed in on Facebook and said, that guy was a jerk. He did that to me too. I can't believe we put up with that. So that was nice not to be the sole voice out there. But then the other thing that happened is that when I mentioned without, with no names, things that had happened and said some of them included things that happened here. Well, I only worked at one station here. And suddenly I was unwelcome at the alumni parties. <laughs> and huh. really, I mean, people would just walk away. And what did I do? I just told the truth about what their bosses did. And in some cases, what they did. Um, but that it's not okay to tell the truth, even 30, 40 years after it happened. It's crazy. Uh, yeah, we're, we have a long way to, we've, we've tried to, uh, to head in the right direction, but we certainly have a long way to go. 
And long after yeah, you and yeah. I are gone, people are still going to be struggling with those issues. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, so uh, let's talk about AM Northwest because I just I think that that show is a gem of local television. I've uh, I grew up watching it, uh, grew up watching you and Boz. You know, and I hate to, I hate to say that because our age differences aren't that much. But when I was in at home uh, in high school and wanted to be in TV news, uh, you know, I was watching that in the morning and I loved what I and I just loved it. And the chance to go host it, you know, maybe 30 years later was uh, was something I could not pass up. Uh, you guys kind of built that from the ground up, didn't you? Well, you know, there were two people responsible for, actually three people responsible for the success of that show. One was Chuck Ingold, who conceived of it, the program director I talked about, who went on to, to New York and greater things. The other was the producer, Lynn Bowler, who I, whom I believe was the producer from day one. And the third, of course, was Jim Bosley, yeah. who was so charismatic and so likable and came with a following. He did it, it was a half hour show and uh, he did it alone for the first year. I, I believe Kathy Smith did the news cut-ins with him. Uh, Kathy is one of the most wonderful people you will ever meet, but my, anyway. My first guest on my podcast, by the way. Yeah, yeah. well, that was a good choice. But um, so then Chuck decided um, to enlarge it, to take it to an hour and add a studio audience. And so when he interviewed me, he was very interested in the fact that I had done weeks and weeks of fill-in work on the morning show and also that I was producing, helping produce one of the producers on a e live evening show. So I made it clear, I do not want to just be talent because women then who were talent, that's what they called people on the air, still do, um, were kind of considered to be Barbie dolls. And I, I knew that I could produce a good show. I knew that I understood exactly how to run a show. I didn't want to be the boss. I didn't want to be Jim's bo Jim Bosley's boss on this show. And it had a fantastic producer and her name was Lynn Bowler. And she had come from LA. I can tell you my neighbor now here in Central Oregon. Really? Yes, I see Lynn all the time. Well, give her my love. I will. And, <laughs> and tell her, and I've said this, I've written this, I've said this many times best producer I ever worked with. And I, my, with my apologies to the other really good producers I worked with. But um, Lynn and Jim had put together a fun show and I came in and I said, okay, here's what you do, yeah. And I stole <laughs> everything from the Seattle show <laughs> and added some of my own things that I had added to our evening show in, C in uh, Seattle. And, you know, things like put the main guest on first so people will tune in right away at the beginning of the show because they know the big star will come on. Mm -hmm. And I just offered tidbits like that. Um, but they already had a great show. It would have been a great show without me. I was just lucky to come in at the right time. But Basley was not happy. And um, a couple interesting things happened. Um, Chuck Ingold said, I'm going to hire you and bring you down here just to observe for a few months. And then we'll gradually put you on the air. And I, I thought, well, okay, you do what you want. And so I, I came down and I started, and I kid you not, I was just observing my very first day that night, Jim Bosley had a major heart attack. And I will never forget, I got the phone call in my brand new Portland apartment and Chuck said, well, we're gonna feed you, I love this mixed met metaphor. We're gonna feed you to the lions and see if you sink or swim. <laughs> you're gonna do the show alone. <laughs> Well, I'd never done a show alone on the air. I'd always had a co-host with the shows that I'd done. And so I went in and we were pre-taping a 4th of July show and the table, coffee table in front of me was filled with fireworks. And I was so nervous. I was supposed to start out by saying, 
it's Tuesday, July 4th or something like that. And I went, it's Tuesday, July. It was the 4th of July show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, one, one out of 31 chance of getting it right. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Look at all these fireworks. But anyway, of course, I was nervous doing it alone. But, um, you know, it was fun. And I really enjoyed it. And Jim uh, got better and came back. And he said, can I take you out to lunch his first day back? And I said, sure. We went to a restaurant kind of his hangout, I think. And uh, we, we sat down and he said, don't take this personally, but I work alone. I'm going to do everything in my power to get rid of you. Wow. And, and, <laughs> I <know. laughs> and so I, I kind of, um, at least he paid for lunch. <laughs> <laughs> he did pay for lunch, but I kind of decided I'm going to handle this way. My dad would, my dad was head of a huge corporation and he was always very calm. And I just said, well, I said, um, I'm going to really help as a producer. I'll, I'm, I think I'm pretty good at booking guests and I have to think I have a feel for things people would like to see on the air. And so, um, and you know, I, I'll, I'll be right there beside you and I hope I can change your mind. And I did. Yeah. And I did it by saving him several times. And of course he would save me too. And we just developed this wonderful friendship and, um, and, right up until he died we were in touch and we would laugh a lot and he was very affectionate and um i was too old to be his daughter but he uh he and i just had that kind of relationship and he was fun to work with sometimes he was a challenge because he didn't like to do the research well you know really it was fine because i'm a compulsive researcher you know that 62 page radio proposal right <laughs> so i would be up all night reading 350 pages of nutrition and you to interview the author the next morning you know and he'd walk in and go who's on today <laughs> and you know what that's okay if yeah. you know if, if that's the way that you handle those things his off the cuff and sometimes maybe uninformed questions might have been the best question to the interview he was so funny and he was on the air exactly as he was off the air um, uh, always funny, always approachable, sometimes a little irascible, but always with humor. You know, I, it was, I love that job. I called it play for pay. Yeah, and, I did. Um, it's, I did it for a little more than a year and a half with Helen. It's the reason I changed stations. Uh, and it's, it was, it was the best thing that I did over 31 years. Not that anything else wasn't good, but uh -huh. to, um, to host a show with a live audience. So you've got to keep them entertained too, you know, which, which is, you know, that's a skill to do six different interviews on different topics in an hour uh, and be informed and funny and entertaining and get along with a, a co-host. Uh, that was the greatest challenge that I ever had in, and it was the greatest joy that I ever had to do that show. Uh, well, the thing about you, Carl, is that you are so funny yourself. You know, I mean, you come from a comedic background. Weren't you a stand-up comic? You were. I, I, I have done stand-up comedy and I'm doing it again now. Oh, that's great. Good. Um, but, and also you have what Jim had, and that is the ability to be yourself on the air. And that's so important. There's no persona. You are who you are. And people can sense that, I really think. Well, thank so, you. Uh, yeah. Which I think that show gives somebody the opportunity to do that. I mean, that's why Dave Anderson, who followed me, was so good at it. Yeah. Um, I just, you know, they, uh, K2 made a change 
They took the studio audience out for most of the days. It was an insurance issue. They took it out of the news department that, you know, they have some, uh, uh, they have some segments that are paid for by sponsors. So the news uh, co-host job could not coexist. And so um, that's, that's why the change happened. And I understood that it was fine. I just am so glad that I, having been a fan of you and Jim, uh, to get to do that with Helen uh, is, is one of my greatest uh, memories of, of all the years that I was in TV there in Portland. And you know, one of the joys of my life is that Helen, who hosts AM Northwest, is one of my dearest friends. Mm -hmm. And yeah, started sure. just like you did. She got her foot in the door in Seattle. She At was King a TV. secretary. She was a, 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 yep. an audience coordinator and worked her tail off Yep. Uh, and, and I'm so proud of her and you, you know, for starting at the bottom and getting to the top. But I always wanted to be a writer for a newspaper. Always. Now I mean, that's interesting, really. Always wanted to. It, it started when, <laughs> you don't need this much detail, but I think this is funny. My mom had five kids in five years. I was the oldest. When I was six years old, we all got chicken pox. And my dad had, had had a job where he traveled all the time and my mom lost her mind. <laughs> my dad got home from his business trip. I'll never forget this. He had this huge box. It was a television set. I had never seen a television set before. And so this must have been 19, what, 58 or, or nine or something like that. And um, so he, he unpacked it and he plugged it in and I was spellbound and I watched it like for an hour. And then I... I, this actually happened. I left the living room, walked down the hall to the bathroom, closed the door, locked the door, looked in the mirror, picked up the soap and did a commercial. <laughs> and I remember thinking, I could do this. I could do this. Awesome. <laughs> but in second grade, we, we moved 18 times, as I said, in second grade, um, the second place we lived was Indianapolis. And I did, a, I started a newspaper uh, and, and my teacher would what was that called that process where they copied things and it smelled good mimeograph or my teacher would mimeograph it for the whole school and it's because i was watching superman and you want and to be lois lane lois lane was the only woman on tv who had the exact same job as a as a man Think nice. about clark was a reporter she was a reporter and yes superman was always rescuing her but superman was rescuing jimmy olsen too so come on yeah. <laughs> Hey, I did I did the newspaper thing too. I started a newspaper at my little league when I was uh, about 13 years old, uh, really? you know, standings and reports on games because I wanted to be a sports reporter. And my dad played along because he, and so he was a teacher. So he would help me type out the stories and we would mimeograph them off. And the next day I would go around and hand them out to everybody at the little league games. That was oh, my journalistic okay. start. All right, Carl. <laughs> <laughs> I love uh, that you went on to do sports. Uh, yeah, for uh, for many years, yeah, yeah, before I shifted over to news. Um, I, I always had wanted to write, and what happened at Channel Two is that, um, without using any names or anything, the 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 station suddenly acquired Oprah for what I understood was quite a large amount of money because yeah, I knew the wife the wife of the salesman for King Syndicate who said, "I think you're paying more than New York." <laughs> And drinks might have been involved, but I don't know. I, that was just a rumor. So, so suddenly I was hosting two at four in the afternoon. Well, let's, let's start there. You, that, they brought in that afternoon show and you went to that. Mary Starrett went to the morning. No, then... actually I did both shows. Oh, for really? Okay. Months. It, um, they wanted to use me again. And, um, 
And so I was doing two shows a day. And then um, Faces and Places was an evening magazine show that had terrible ratings and they had to cancel it. But um, the station manager wanted Mary Starrett to stay on the air. So they put her on, um, uh, I, they put her on the morning show. And I went to them and said, look, I'm a single mom now. I'd been recently divorced. My daughter gets out of school at three. I'd rather stay with the morning show with Jim, which I've done for so long and which I produced and I'm invested in. And they said, no, you know, she, uh, anyway. Yeah, she worked out. So I went to the afternoon show. Promises were made, promises were broken. Mm -hmm. And suddenly they had the Oprah show and no place to put it. So even though our show was leading in the ratings and they were making money on it, uh, the, our show was canceled. And I was transferred to the news department where the new new my new boss my new news director said you know you should do what and he named a former woman anchor at channel two what she did you should find a rich husband and just stay home and i thought oh i'm the, i'm not going to climb this mountain all over again i'm just i'm just making a list of the things i'm going to apologize for when we get done margie but you keep going <laughs> well this guy anyway so um i i had uh, been contacted by bill hilliard of the oregonian because he had seen me give a speech. And he said, are you interested in writing a gossip column for the Oregonian? I said, no, nah. I'm a journalist and I'm a writer. I, I think I'm a pretty good writer. It's what I've always wanted to do. So I made a counteroffer. I said, may I write three sample columns of the kind of column I would write for the Oregonian? Mm -hmm. And he said, yes. He, he said, but also write me a gossip column. So I wrote, <laughs> one, I wrote one gossip column and I wrote three general interest columns one was a little investigative. I knew someone who was a detective on the force. Um, another was about a couple I had met on AM Northwest who both were mentally handicapped and they fell in love with each other and had to persuade their families to let them get married. And now they want children. And that was an interesting situation. Yeah. Anyway, I remember what they were, but I submitted them and he said, okay, you're not going to be a gossip columnist. You're going to be a general interest columnist. And we're not going to put you in the living section just because you're a woman. You're going to be the first woman general interest columnist on the Metro pages. And so that's how I that's how I got the job. And hey, a, a guy that uh, knew how to do things right, huh? Bill Hilliard was so wonderful. He was a perfect gentleman to me. He was supportive, and he, my immediate editor Jeff, Judd Randall, when I joined, was also very supportive. And that was kind of necessary, and understandably there was resistance to my being hired because I was one of those fluffy TV people who did household hints in the morning. How dare I come in and become a columnist, which is a coveted position in a newspaper. Absolutely. I totally, I, I totally understood. Some of them came around, usually the ones who sat around me and got to know me, and some of them never did. Um, but I loved that job. I loved that job and I miss it to this day. Well, uh, you know, all of us in this business are writers in some way or another. And um, I, I can understand the joy of writing and writing something well and writing something that means something. Uh, there's, there's nothing like it. I, I, you, know, I, you know, I can compare the same thing to hosting a show in front of a live TV audience, nothing like that and the joy from that. But I, I, I can understand where you're coming from. If you're a writer and to be given that opportunity uh, with an audience, that the Oregonian had, I, I understand the joy you have in, in, in that. It really, uh, I wish more people could understand the value of that. I tried to, I try to convince the kids that I teach every once in a while. I used to teach middle school and now I substitute teach how valuable writing is. I don't know that they quite understand it because their only form of writing is like this. <laughs> well, maybe they're becoming different kinds of storytellers. 
you know, but it's all, it all comes down to, to telling stories, I think. Mm -hmm. But I'm, I'm, I want to ask you a question. I hope you don't mind a conversation instead of a question. Absolutely, that's what this is. Yeah, but um, it's interesting to me how different types of media interviews work. Doing a, um, a live interview in front of a studio audience on a show like AM Northwest, West, which both you and I hosted, um, as opposed to doing a video interview where you are interviewing someone and it's being recorded, but it will be edited later, mm -hmm. um, as opposed to doing a print interview where the interview itself will never see the light of day. The interview is interpreted through your words when you write the column or the story. I mean, which do you prefer? Ah, uh, prefer, that's an interesting question because um, they're all so different and so valuable. Um, yeah, I, again, I think I think I preferred most the, uh, the live five or six minute interview with AM Northwest that needed a beginning, a middle and end and needed to tell a story. I mean, that needed to be done. That's a skill, that's a really tough skill to do. Um, the TV interview, uh, that's always interesting because as a reporter, I'm looking for a sound bite, okay? I, I'm looking to ask you a question and the answer you give me needs to be the right length and it needs to tell what I need it to tell. And I'm not saying that as far as I wanna tell a story, so tell me what I wanna hear. I've learned what the story is, help me tell it with this segment. And you know the length of it can be something, but there's some limitations to that. So that's why, Oftentimes in TV news, uh, I'm going to ask you that question a couple of times uh, so that I get, I know what you want to say. and I know what you need to say. I want, I need to get it in the right form. And so that's right. that. Um, and I, I, I've done some newspaper writing or articles of feature writing or uh, uh, freelance things. And I, I get what you're saying is uh, most of the stuff you're getting is not going to go into a quotation. Some of it will, but into a quotation form. Um, you're looking for background to help you find the words to tell the story right. I think you're also looking for insight. And because the interview is private, I preferred to do them on the telephone because I discovered if I went to people's houses to interview them, they would try to clean the house and apologize for it when I got there. And I can't believe you're in my living room. And it, But on the telephone, I would always say, go in a room where nobody can overhear you, close mm -hmm. the door, and just talk to me. <clears throat> and and I always try to be respectful. I said, you may end up telling me things that you don't feel comfortable including and just tell me, tell me that. I'm not here to embarrass you. Um, I'm here to help. And I really, I love the sheer writing of my columns. And so if I had to pick my number one job ever, it would definitely be working for the Oregonian, for Bill Hilliard. Mm -hmm. um, but I missed the spontaneity and the need to be aware simultaneously of six or seven things on the air. And then, as you said, the need, and also the need to make the live interview compelling. If you have a guest who unfortunately simply just doesn't have much spark or speaks too slowly or doesn't have much to say, you have to find a way to keep that interview compelling. And you can just hear the clicks, you know, mm -hmm. nobody does this and this is how old I am. They're changing the channel. No. Get off the couch and walk up there and turn the channel. <laughs> But um, I, I remember one time we had a fellow on the air who just would not stop talking. I mean, so many funny, you and I should do another interview on the crazy funny things that happen on live TV. But, um, and we can entertain each other when we do have Helen come too. But anyway, um, 
he just would not stop talking and it was time for a commercial break and you know they're they're like wrapping you up and then they're like going to spot which is for those who don't know what we call commercials in the biz and then finally they're running their finger across their neck like cut 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 and this guy would not stop talking so funny i just kind of tapped his leg and he said live on the air young woman take your hand off my leg (laughs) (laughs) i had one of those with um uh, a guy I can't remember his name, so I won't even say it, but he was, uh, he was kind of high up in Portland society and opinionated, and he was a guest every four or five months, and, uh, and he was just going on and on and on about stuff, and we were running out of time. He didn't have to figure out, and I, and I had to cut him off as politely, and, you know, thanks. We'll talk about that next time and move on, because, you know, we had other things to do, and, and he was so uh, uh, aghast or at, at me specifically that Carl Click doesn't know what he's doing you know he, he, and and it was kind of he was um, uh, you know kind of marking his territory he doesn't know who I am nobody cuts me off and blah 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 well yeah I cut you off but there's the producer in the air and the director and the floor director were all helping yeah, um, we gotta get to a tide commercial for God's sake <laughs> we gotta pay for this air that you're wasting <laughs> oh man it I do want to say one thing, and that is I was on AM Northwest from 77 through 87, which was 11 years. And it was a very interesting period to do a live TV show in a small city like Portland. I mean, I'm not saying we're podunk, we're not, we're a major city, but still compared to other cities, you wouldn't expect to get the biggest movie stars in the world on your show. And yet, because there there was no such thing as a satellite interview yet, movie production companies and book publishers sent all the biggest best-selling writers, Mm -hmm. movie stars, TV stars around, physically sent them around the country on tours to do these morning shows. And I don't know if you knew this, but for a couple of years, we were the highest rated locally produced morning show in the country. That surprised me. It was something like a 56 share. And so, which meant over half of the people watching television were watching our show. And so everybody wanted to get on AM Northwest. We covered a lot of Oregon and, and Southern Washington. And so, I mean, Paul Newman, Robert Redford, every presidential candidate, mm-hmm. um, and I mean the major ones that, that won and became president, <laughs> um, all the Watergate figures who wrote books after the fact, I, it was just amazing, in fact, G. Gordon Liddy came on to promote his book, his autobiography, when I was pregnant with my daughter in 1980. And I had just read his book. Of course, I read the book. Mm-hmm. Underline questions in the margin, you know, mispreparedness. And, um, and uh, I was horrified by the things he said, the things about burning his hands with cigarettes and choosing his wife from military records because he was bad at math and he wanted his children to be good at math and he didn't love her, but he wanted the math. <laughs> So I read this book with horror and the next morning he came on and we interviewed him and he signed our, we, we, we always had the authors sign their books. And when I, after the show, I opened it and said, dear Margie, what a wonderful interview. I hope we will become good friends. Good luck with the baby, love Gordon. And I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> Gordon Liddy. <laughs> One of the things that, that was thrilling for me was that as a child, Mary Martin had been my idol. I uh-huh. wanted to be on Broadway and be a musical theater star. And she came through to do an interview. And I had mentioned to Lynn Bowler, our producer, that, um, as a child, I had kept a scrapbook on Mary Martin. 
And so she, Lynn contacted my mother in LA and my mother sent up the scrapbook unbeknownst to me. And when Mary Martin came on the show, I was shaking. I was so excited. And they brought out the scrapbook and Mary was really touched and invited me to spend the day with her. Oh, awesome. So I took up in the limo and we just developed a wonderful friendship. She lived in Palm Springs at the time we stayed in touch. She collected hands, little statues of hands. And so I sent her a couple from local artists. And, and when I went into labor for my daughter, which is about 18 months after I met her, maybe two years, um, I think Lynn called her in Palm Springs and told her I was in labor. And she called the hospital and got put through somehow oh, right no. after I had given birth and congratulated me and said, hold the phone by the baby's ear. And she sang my daughter her first lullaby. Oh my goodness, Margie, that's just like treasure. That happened to regular people like me. <laughs> hey, did you ever feel like, I can't be on TV. People on TV are like people on Mars, like Walter Cronkite or, I mean, I felt that way at first. I thought, oh God, I'd never be on the air. I'm not beautiful enough. You have to be Miss America and Albert Schweitzer to be on TV. Evidently <laughs> not. Look who's talking to you. And I did it for 31 <laughs> years, Marky. So, oh, <laughs> uh, I, you know, you talked about those satellite interviews. I came in when I hosted the show about the time those were becoming the, the more preferred way to do those interviews and understandably for the uh, people. So we didn't have as many people come through, but um, I was, I was excited as heck when I got to interview Jack Klugman in person <laughs> and Tordy Orlando came through too. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, by the way, Jack Klugman's son lives in Portland. Really? Yeah. Oh, that's, well, that's why Jack Klugman was on our air. He was visiting his son and he came through oh. and, and he sat and talked with us. So in fact, just, just yesterday we had the, uh, music station on we were 70s and Tony Orlando and Don came on and I just turned to my wife and said I interviewed him in person once <laughs> I interviewed Tom Jones on his private plane at the Portland airport oh wow I know <laughs> <laughs> you you look at me in a whole new way now don't you Claire that's not unusual <laughs> da -da -da -da. Um, you know the ones that I was most affected by were the ones that meant something to me from my childhood mm -hmm. like um uh jerry mathers who played beaver on leave it to beaver yeah or um the woman who played kathy on father knows best and and later when i was doing radio as well as writing a column barbara billingsley who's the mother on father knows best in fact i wrote a column about that she said something i will never forget and it made such an impression on me she said at a time when i was playing the prototypical perfect wife and mother and making every woman in America feel guilty um, because they weren't vacuuming in heels and pearls. She said, actually, I was leaving home at 7 a.m. and coming home at 7 p.m. I never saw my own children. Wow. That was reality. Yeah. Oh, and she told me the reason she always wore pearls is she had some weird bones here and the producers wanted to cover them up. So she had to wear pearls in every episode. It was not a fashion statement. No. <laughs> Uh, so it was more than 20 years you were writing the column, right? 23 years. Yeah. Um, were you ever, uh, it, I was never really going to the station as a reporter worried about what story I was going to do because there was always something. Uh, how often did that anxiety get you that I, I have a column due and I don't have it? Or was there just always this backlog of stories that you wanted to get to and were able to keep yourself busy? 
there was never a backlog of stories. It, I had that anxiety every single day for 23 years, except wow. when I was on vacation. Even my daughter, my when I got the job, my daughter was six years old. She was in first grade. And I, I had to write three, three columns a week, which is a lot. I mean, other columnists around the country write two columns a week. I had to write three. And for the first, I don't know, 18 years, I had no help whatsoever. I had no assistant. And, and, the, and the reader response was huge, huge. So a lot of my time was just coping with listening to 75 phone messages a day. You know, Hoping a story would come out, right? You know, yeah. And I was scrambling, scrambling. I worked, I had no days off. All weekend long, I was looking for stories. Mm -hmm. I was driving my, da my daughter uh, to the bank one time and at, down our US bank on Burnside, there were like a bunch of police cars and ambulances. And she turns to me, six years old, and she goes, mom, might be a column. <laughs> it was, there was terrible anxiety. And, you know, sometimes people bring up columns I wrote about my daughter or, or memories of my family. The only time I ever wrote columns, personal columns, is if a column fell through at the last minute. Right. I never planned it. Also, even when she was six years old, I never wrote about my daughter unless she gave me permission. Sure. And sometimes she said no. Uh -huh. <laughs> no and that was fine. Mm -hmm. but, um, but people still mention a column I wrote when I took her to college. She also went to Whitman College in Walla Walla. And um, driving home after dropping her off was the hardest thing I, I've ever done. Mm -hmm. You know, I was a single mom. And, um, and we have a fantastic relationship. And we did all growing up. And it was just so hard knowing that um, she, I'm getting teary right now. She's too far away. She's in Washington, DC during quarantine. But um, it was just really hard. I, I had to pull over a couple of times driving home. And I remember I went down to um, Zupan's. It was Kino's then. And I was just shopping for groceries. And I reached the, uh, the uh, dairy department and I burst into tears because I realized I never have to buy milk again. <laughs> but people mention that column a lot. And in fact, sometimes I just send a copy to people when their kids are leaving for college. Sure, yeah. Did you have that when your kids left home? Uh, probably not on that level. Uh, I just, I, I, well, Jill and I, my wife and I would take them together and I can, I can remember kind of feeling like I needed to be uh, the support for Jill. Uh, you know, we, we were both teary-eyed when we dropped both kids off, but I, I kind of felt like it was my job to put an arm around Jill and, and make sure that she was uh, doing all right a little bit. Um, uh, yeah, I, but I, but I know what you're talking about. It's, uh, it's that it's difficult, but it's so doggone necessary to send them off to that next stage. And, you know, luckily for us, both of them did really, really well. So I'm, I'm sure your daughter did as well. Yeah. I, it's tricky when you're in the news business, um, knowing what to share, how much, what and how much to share of your personal life with the public. But I think in the end, if you're willing to share a few key moments, and you know who did this so beautifully is Steve Dean. Yeah. Um, who is a brilliant writer. And um, he would share some stories from his life that were so touching. And you really, it made the other stuff that, it, that he wrote, it makes the other stuff you write 
I think, uh, seem more vivid or more real to people because they feel they know you as a person. Right. And, I, and I, as you were saying that, I agree with you about Steve Dean. I've known Steve forever and, and he is brilliant. Um, is every other columnist that we know uh, has done exactly what you said is uh, they have talked about their personal lives when it was right. You know, Dave Barry, Mike Rocco, Mike Rocco, uh, Irma Bombeck made a career out of it. Um, uh, and so, I mean, that it, that is a necessary part because you're writing about what you know, what you know is this and, and, and to make sure that these people reading every column that you read know where you're coming from as a person uh, makes it makes those other reading experiences more valuable to them, I imagine. Right. But, you know, it was rarely planned. <laughs> it usually was because this guy I'm writing about today and my deadline is at three o'clock said he had proof of everything he claimed and he was going to get all the documentation to me and he didn't. So I'm not going to write a story. Oh my God, what yeah. am I going to write about? <laughs> See, I, I mean, uh, easy for me to say, I would have like two or three backup columns in a file, you know, like, just that I could, you know, could pull out and, uh, and, and use for that emergency because I can understand the anxiety of, of, of being able to hit that deadline. Yeah, and then you use up those backup columns and then you're right back where you started. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Let's you, be realistic. Yeah. Do you remember the column you wrote about me? No, I'm sorry. Remind me. No, I'm, I'm happy that you did not. Do you not remember? Um, when I was uh, starting up stand-up comedy. No, wait, uh, was it the time you got arrested? No, no I didn't know. Not, not that time, <laughs> not that column. Uh, starting up uh, doing stand-up comedy just as a hobby with a couple other friends. One guy was a producer at Channel 6 uh, who has gone on to be a television producer. One guy was a photographer who's still working in the market. And one guy was a magician. We were young. And, and so we, in order to get audiences, we would just invite our friends to some place and we tell the, the tavern owner, hey, listen, we're going to bring 30 people in here. Um, can we have your stage and do our, you know, our, our stand-up routines? Uh, so we did that a few times. And I invited you to come to one. Um, and, 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 and you could, you couldn't come to that one, but you did say, do you have any others? And unfortunately we did. And it was out at the Clark County fair at an outdoor restaurant pizza place outside the fair. Uh, and of course you couldn't come to the one where all our friends were there drinking and laughing, but you came to this one and, oh. and all of us bombed, all oh, four of us bombed badly. Um, did you say you bombed? Uh, I can't uh, believe I would do that. Well, I think you you uh, you talked about uh, the lessons that comedy teaches young people. <laughs> uh, uh, but the reason we bombed was, and I've learned this in doing comedy, is 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 there are lots of reasons you bomb, but in, in lots of cases, it's just it's just the venue, it's the atmosphere. People didn't come to sit down to listen to comedy; they came to have pizza, and there's a guy talking to them about X, Y, and Z, and the microphone's not good, and the ambience isn't right. Um, and so the same material we'd done the night before with 30, 30, 40 people that we knew that were having a good time and came to see comedy didn't land the way it did outside the Clark County far, uh, fair at, uh, at a pizza place. Uh, so you did write about that and about how we, uh, uh learned a good lesson. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I couldn't go to the original one. Um, I do have to tell you that as a singer, I'm very familiar with uh, performing in the wrong venue at the wrong time for the wrong people. So I am many, many times I've performed with local jazz groups or with 
Tom Grant or supremely talented people and, and no one's paying attention and, and they're missing out on some of the best music they could ever want to hear. <laughs> and, so, um, and I'm not talking about me, I'm talking about the people I was performing with. Yeah. So I really do understand that. However, since you mentioned the Clark County Fair, I have a very fond memory for uh, an experience I had there. Um, you know, when I first came to Portland, I continued singing jingles at Portland recording studios for advertising agencies. And um, uh, there was a receptionist at one of them and she was super nice and we became friends. And one day she called me up at channel two and she said, we just got one of these Bouvier de Flandre dogs, you know, a French dog and we're naming her with your permission, Margie Boulay. And I said, well, that's so sweet, of course, how wonderful. So I kind of forgot about it. Uh, once in a while, when I went in to sing or something, we would talk about the dog, Margie Boulay. And she always called her Margie Boulay. She never called her Margie. So anyway, she calls me up one day and she goes, you know, we've been taking her to dog shows and she's been winning everything. And we think she might become a grand champion this weekend at the Clark County Fairgrounds. Would you like to come watch the dog show? And, you know, I hear my little daughter's voice. Might be a column. <laughs> Constantly looking. <laughs> so I drove up there. I'm, I remember I got the first speeding ticket of my life as I was driving up to the Clark County Fairgrounds. <laughs> and... Um, so I, I, I pull in and I, I walk inside thousands of people and I finally see them waving and I come over and my friend says, you know, this is Margie Boulay. And I said, yeah, I know. And she goes, no, I'm talking to the dog. And all, all day long, it happened like that. She would say, Margie, don't sit, you'll get dirty. And I would stand up, <laughs> but she did really well. And finally she, and she advanced and finally it was all the female dogs in competition. And, and I was, um, we were we were watching and and uh, what do you know she won and over the loudspeaker at the Clark County Fairgrounds they go best bitch Margie Boulay <laughs> and they even pronounced my name right <laughs> oh my goodness you had a headline right there oh my gosh there was just one thing I was concerned about and I said you know you don't let her run free in the neighborhood, do you? And she said, oh, no. And I said, thank God, because I don't want the neighbors saying, oh, Margie Boulay pooped in our yard again. <laughs> oh, yeah, but all that just makes the greatest column ever. <laughs> it was a fun column to write. Yeah. Oh, Margie, I can't thank you enough for uh, spending a little bit of your day with me. And, and I, I mean, I, I know for a fact that this just is part one. We're going to come back and do this again. And well, I love, I, I love your idea of having Helen join us. <laughs> I have at least an hour of stories of the horrible things that happen on live TV. <laughs> and I know you do and Helen does too. So we should make it a threesome sometime. We will, we will do that. So Margie, I just really uh, uh, love the fact that you're still a, a Portland treasure and, uh, and the fact that you would take some time to chat with us here is, is just awesome. And I hope all the best for you and your daughter uh, out there on the other side of the country. I hope you guys get together soon when we get this uh, pandemic taken care of. And the same to you and your family, Carl. I really, you know, let's, let's get through all of this and have regular life come back. We're all hungry for that. Absolutely. 